Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Hub podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. Our guest for today is Avelina Tarago. Avelina is a Wonka Mudler woman from central west Queensland and a traditional owner for Baduri on the edge of the Simpson Desert in southwestern Queensland's Channel Country and the area west of Bulya. Along with her deep ties to country, Avelina has achieved great success both in her career and in her personal endeavours. She's one of only six female Indigenous barristers in Australia and prior to being called to the bar in 2017, Avelina was a federal prosecutor with the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. She's a fierce campaigner for Indigenous women and advocating for bush heritage and I couldn't be more thrilled to be speaking with her. Avelina, you grew up on a small property in Jimboomba, which for those not from Queensland is just outside of Brisbane. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood? I think I had a wonderful childhood. I went to school in West End, so it was 48 k's away from where we lived. So my parents would drive me um, to and from school uh, every day. But it was great because I'd go home and we only had a small property, uh, 10 and a half acres. So sort of just a little hobby farm. And, you know, you couldn't see your neighbours in the middle of scrub. Really had a different experience to what my classmates would have, you know, understanding where, uh, what your eating comes from, (laughs) I think was probably the biggest thing. Because at the back of our property, we had a railway line that uh, would go to the abattoir. So understood the life cycle of what it was like. And my mum would tell me what it was like growing up on the station at Glenormiston. And it's like, you know, those cattle that from Glenormiston, they come down, they fatten them up and there they are on the train. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So not something that your downtown Brisbane kid would understand. And just great having animals and understanding that relationship of looking after country as traditional owner, but also, you know, for animals and plants and and all of the things that how we all interconnect and you've got to look after each piece for us to exist. What were the reactions of your friends when they would come to visit your place? I mean, a lot of them would never have been to a block bigger than where they were living. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I was a bit of a curious kid, so I'd have, you know, all the snakes and jars and lizards and take them for show and tell. And um, my friends would love to come for sleepovers and, yeah, we'd go for bush walks and go out in the paddock and feed the, the cows and all sorts of things that they never been so close to cattle before not used to having to run for the fence and get under the barbed wire fence after getting chased um yeah so I guess it was an adventure for them as well but uh, you know there's a few that I'm still in contact with now you know some 30 years later and those experiences have sat with them and they cherish those memories I mean, yeah, being city kids coming from West End and coming to your place on a weekend, it would have been so, so different for them. (laughs) Exactly. What did you do once you finished school? What was that path that you took? Uh, So I went straight from school into 
uh, university, uh, studying uh, Bachelor of Law at uh, Queensland University of Technology. Um, I also, in my first year, uh, got a job with the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. And I think it's a pathway that my parents could see my personality and skills and ability very young and sort of fostered that. I wanted to go into marine biology at one point because I had a real affinity for um, whales and dolphins, um, but it was definitely a phase. <laughs> and my real passion is just in advocacy, which a legal pathway has been the best and I don't think I would have picked anything else. When was it that you knew that the legal career path was the way that you wanted to go? Was there a point in your life that you just went, oh, this is it, this is what I want to do? Yeah, it, I was reflecting on it recently and I had a look at one of my memory books from year 12 and I wrote in there that I wanted to be a barrister, which I am now. Um, <laughs> and so that that was interesting. But I think on reflection, it probably when I was in grade five and it was when there was a lot of whaling happening of um, minke whales and I had written to the Minister for Environment in Queensland and federally about what Australia should be doing to protect whales. And I guess that's a, that love of animals and love of marine animals. Um, but my mum could say, no, you're, that advocacy is you wanting to protect the rights of vulnerable people or vulnerable animals, vulnerable environment. I think that was probably the point where I realised, yeah, that's what that little activity was. It was me advocating. It's amazing, isn't it? And you've achieved so much since becoming a barrister and you were called to the bar in 2017. You're only one of six Indigenous female barristers in Australia, which I find that number quite staggering. Why are there so few Indigenous women at the level that you're at? Oh, there's a few reasons for that. And I think that family responsibility is a major factor. So not only for children, but uh, I know for myself, looking after my elders and other family members who might not have um, the resources that I have or that I can access. And so there's a lot of a mental load looking after everybody else. And I guess the type of personality that you get in barristers, like the, there's a, a lot of different characters, but from our community, really those warrior women that are staunch advocates and um so that tends to flow on into their personal lives as well, where they're taking on those really strong leadership roles in their families. Um, so I think that's one, but definitely the cost of becoming a barrister as well. And it, talking about money is always an uncomfortable conversation, particularly when you come from a community that, you know, uh, we don't have a lot of generational wealth. And so... It takes a lot to get to a position where you can be okay to to stand on your own two feet with the layering of having those family responsibilities as well. What was the reaction from your family 
uh, and your community when you did decide to go into this sort of career path? Yeah, were there any ramifications from that? Uh, no, I've I've had a lot of people sort of pushing me, why haven't you gone sooner? You need to go to the bar. <laughs> and I guess I feel a bit of imposter syndrome that um, maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I'm not going to make it, all of those thoughts. And I know a lot of women experience that. Um, and a lot of First Nations women experience that as well. So it's that layering. And then you're, you know, you're questioning yourself, well, why am I giving up this stable job (laughs) to do something so uncertain? I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I couldn't go back, not for a second. I I love being at the bar and I'm glad that I took that risk. I'm a very risk-averse person. (laughs) (laughs) What have been some of the challenges that you've faced over your career? Being the only Aboriginal face at the bar table, um, particularly when the subject matter is talking about issues that face our community and you are a subject matter expert because of your lived experience but also because of the academic work that I've done to layer on top of that lived experience. And to try and have conversations with people who, in my opinion, are very ignorant or they haven't done the work to develop their knowledge to talk about those things. It's really, I struggle with that. Mm. And I think if I didn't have uh, one of my best friends who's the other Aboriginal female barrister in Queensland, so there's only two of us in Queensland, Malia Ben, who's in Cairns, I think I probably wouldn't have made the first cheer, I don't think, um, without having her support. So that sisterhood's really strong there and that's why it's really important to have us band together to push each other forward. It must make you so proud, though, that you're representing your people. It does, yeah, uh, but... You know, when I go back home out on country, so, that you know, um, central west Queensland, and it doesn't take much for the oldies to be like, well, go get me a cup of tea. Um, <laughs> Put you back like, in your place. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, go, go and open the gate, shut the gate, <laughs> do, do the tasks that, you know, no matter of ranking, I think even if I was to advance further in my career up the ranks, um, there's still that expectation in community. <laughs> you're still, you got a position in community regardless of what you might do for your nine to five. I love that. <laughs> now talk me through the process of getting to the point where you're at becoming a barrister. How is the work different to being a lawyer and where are you sort of headed next? So you have to do your undergraduate study um, at university and once you finish that Bachelor of Laws, you do a postgraduate diploma of legal practice and then uh, I personally recommend people get experience as a solicitor. So after getting your graduate diploma, you have to apply to the legal profession to you know, you must be a good standing to become a lawyer, a solicitor, and um, you 
get presented to the Supreme Court of the relevant state that you're in. So for me, it was Queensland and um, become a solicitor. And I worked for worked for seven years as a solicitor before I um, was called to the bar. And uh, the bar in Queensland, it's different in each state, but you have to pass uh, three exams and they're very rigorous exams and it's like 65% or more to pass it. It's not just a 50% pass rate. And um, once you pass that, those three exams, you do a six-week course to becoming a barrister and then at the end of that um, can sign the role as a barrister. Um, so that's sort of the academic pathway. So it is quite intensive, obviously, and that is one of the reasons that you sort of think that so few Indigenous women are available to do it because they're caring for their families. It's also monetary there's a monetary issue there but it led you to form a trust that was established to support more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to take up a career at the bar can you talk me through what work you've done in this space yeah so um the Queensland Bar Association um they already had a trust which was um named after fellow Queenslander uh his uh barrister um, by the name of Lloyd McDermott. He's the first barrister, Aboriginal barrister in Australia. And um, it's named in his honour and his traditional name is Mullinjawaka. So it's called the Mullinjawaka Trust and it's there to support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to uh, advance a career in the bar. But uh, uh, to raise funds, I collaborated with uh, Pierre Dupradal, who is a fashion designer and we have a women's wear collection, um, very beautiful collection that's based on the artwork of Louise Namina, who's an Amachara woman from the Northern Territory who um, I've worked with before. That artwork has been used for the fabric design and proceeds of the sales of those um, pieces of um, clothing go towards the Mulanjawaka Trust. So it, it's been exciting and I love fashion, so it's great to be able to do something less serious than my day job and but also contribute to linking it back to what I do. And talk to me about the prints inside of the court robes that you wear. Yeah, so uh, that's where the project initially started and then we developed it for the project with Pia. So uh, I needed a new bar jacket. COVID hasn't been kind. Um, <laughs> maybe had too many Tim Tams and I needed a new jacket. And um, uh, you get to pick the lining colour uh, of the lining fabric of the jacket. And I wanted to have something that was really meaningful to me. And that was to use the fabric with Aboriginal design on it so that I could connect with my purpose of being in, in court, especially representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Unfortunately, that wasn't available at the time and I was like, let's work together and make it available and and why don't we also link this to the Mullinger Walker Trust with proceeds going back 
to supporting um, barristers. So we've the design is uh, water soakage, so really earthy red and yellow tones. And for me, that resonated because from my country is that red desert sand and it just is so striking. And then you've got the clay pans that are that white kind of colour, grey colour. Uh, so I look at that and it connects me to home, but also, um, the, you know, rain dreaming, rainmaker dreaming is very big for my family. And so when I see that water dreaming, uh, I connect and and it's like I've got the old people with me. It's such a beautiful idea and what a great conversation starter as well. Yeah, it, and it's just so striking. Um, uh, I think art is such an amazing vehicle for uh, teaching and people can appreciate it and, and might be more open where they might not have a lot to do with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so uh, you can enter into those discussions with people a lot easier uh, and I'm all for that. I'm all for bringing people in and having conversations with people where they might ordinarily be too frightened, I guess, or not know where to start. Are there any particular designs that have resonated with you that you've chosen to have on your robes? Um, it, well, it's this water soakage design, yeah, and it's... Um, having that connection of you know the other people on your shoulders as well pushing you or you're standing on the shoulders of giants like it's our our ancestors which for Aboriginal people we're very connected to and knowing that I'm on the right path and it's all of those sorts of messages that keep me going that's that motivation to you're in the right place now, you're a traditional owner for Baduri, which is on the edge of the Simpson Desert in southwestern Queensland's Channel Country and the area west of Bulia. What does being a traditional owner mean? What sort of responsibility does that carry? Uh, so being a traditional owner, uh, so we uh, have bloodline connection to those areas as opposed to historical. So historical I'm historical to Brisbane. I was born here. I've grown up here, but I don't have cultural connections to the storylines and the totems and um, in Brisbane, even though I respect and value them. Um, my connection is out west and uh, I have that responsibility of looking after country um, so that's the plants and animals and landscape and a responsibility for um, maintaining that knowledge. So passing it down through the generations to our younger people so that they understand their responsibility as well. And because for me, if you're looking after country, you're also looking after the ancestors because for, for my family, um, you know, we believe that um when you pass away that you're connected to those totems that you are connected to when you're alive and so when we see those animals or um we see those stars you can talk to your children and grandchildren and say oh look 
Granny's here because the little peewee bird has just decided to come and visit us. So it, it's connecting to, and we're not saying that that is a reincarnation of the grandmother, but it, it, it's connecting to say, you know, that's that storyline of your grandmother's storyline of the peewee bird, you know. Um, so it it is really deep and integrated into our belief system. How do you feel when you're back on country? Explain to me what that is like. Oh, I, as soon as I drive over the Georgina River, because uh, that's like the start of our homelands. So if I'm driving to Glen Ormiston Station or Pilanga Reserve, crossing that river, I instantly feel relief and happiness and I'm home. I belong here. I'm looked after here. I'm. I find I'm not as stressed as well uh, when I'm out there, and I, it's probably because I got no phone reception and people can't bother me. But <laughs> I, I, I just decompress and take things in, and am observant of my surroundings and uh, breathing that fresh air that you don't get down in Brisbane. All of those things. So I think it's just a state of of being and and knowing that you're safe. Does that connection and that feeling differ for different people? I think so because we all come from different lived experiences. So not everyone is going to um, have a positive or negative experience or they might be indifferent. I think it is harder for those who might be part of the stolen generation when they initially reconnect with country, and I can't speak to that experience, but I I would imagine that it would be difficult Um, because I've seen, I've observed it within our our tribal group where some of the families might not have grown up on country. Um, I've been so lucky that my grandmother and my mother insisted from, you know, a baby going home being shown country, um, knowing, you know, all of those stories from a very young age and growing up with those stories. And it's funny when I, I guess, I finished high school and went back home and you hear all these stories growing up, but then you start meeting these people that feature in the stories and the it all becomes real. It's not they're not just stories anymore. And then you become intertwined with these people and it becomes your life. So those are really special special times and not everyone has the benefit of that. Mm. And why is that area so special to your family in particular? Why has that got such a positive uh feeling when you return? I think for my family, because my grandfather was a head stockman at Glen Ormiston and um, he and my grandmother worked in, uh, on there as well. But, you know, the Brown family and the Douglas family, the non-Indigenous fam- um, families that were station managers at Roxburgh Downs and Marqua, which is the outstation of Tobermory just over the border um, in Territory and Glen Ormiston, all of they looked after our old people and they had respect. It wasn't the experience of many Aboriginal people at the time throughout the state or Australia. And so 
they look, you know, um, they encouraged Nan and Pop to send my mum and her siblings to boarding school so they got educated. They, uh, you know, supported those old people and including when you know, they left the station, well, they were forced off the station eventually when there was equal pay. But, um, you know, those those relationships were maintained to today. And I know we're very fond of Judy Raymond, who's at Adria Downs. Um, and she's a, a descendant of the Brown family. And so, you know, we still have those connections today. And they're very, very important to us because, you know, they lived alongside us and they had respect for those people. Now, you're at the forefront for advocating for initiatives like Bush Heritage as well. What is Bush Heritage all about? Uh, So I'm a director on the board of Bush Heritage and it's a nature conservation organisation that essentially um, acquires properties to restore them to their um, original natural heritage. So essentially removing the cattle um, if it was a pastoral station or taking over management, if it was just a, um, a family property. They have various properties throughout Australia and they also have a number of partnerships with Aboriginal people and um, quite a lot through Northern Australia. Why is it so important to look after country and restore it back to its original state? Uh, I think just what we've seen with climate change is that we can't keep going forever and so we do need to maintain pockets um, Mm -hmm. for future generations. So that and looking after country because for me I believe that if you're looking after country it will look after you. So if you give it time to restore itself, it's going to provide more in return. So... Um, a healthy landscape is you're going to have better water quality or you're going to have, you know, more foliage so that animals can retreat in the heat. It's getting so hot out in the West now every year and it's a a worry that it might get too hot to be Mm. out there in in the midsummer, you know. So you do need to have those refuges for the animals and the plants and the people. And how has that initiative been received? It it, it depends. Um, I always sort of uh, explain that we need to be good neighbours to each other uh, because when things go bad, there's no one else out there. But I, I think there there is sometimes a worry when conservation organisations come into particularly strong pastoral areas that they're going to be releasing dingoes or... Um, they're going to be um, doing this, that and the other that's going to impact. And I appreciate those concerns, but I think it goes both ways as well as learning that um, maybe we need to develop the way we do. Um, We raise cattle or we raise sheep or, and there might be better ways. And one thing that I think is great from Bush Heritage's perspective on land management is the Uh, right way science so using science but also using traditional knowledge of Aboriginal people to look after country and it's that using the strengths of both processes to get the best outcome and I can see um, with the 2030 strategy for bush heritage is also to start forming partnerships with the agricultural sector 
and you know there's some things that partialists do great and there's some things that scientists and aboriginal people do great and why can't we use all those strengths together to get a great outcome Evelina, changing pace slightly, you're currently going through the process of IVF, which is the reality for many, many women in Australia. But as an Indigenous woman, this often isn't talked about. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think traditionally it's because we do have men and women's business and it does form part of women's business and there's certain certain stigmas around talking openly about fertility and talking openly about birthing and motherhood. And so there's a reluctance, I think, it depends on what community you come from, but there might be a reluctance to talk openly about it and off, and even to the point where um, people might say, well, you shouldn't be talking openly about that at all. Um, and I just find that as a society we do need to develop and we need to support our women and our younger women and the only way for us to talk about it is is openly. Do you think it is a cultural thing? Do you think it's culturally frowned upon or do you think it's just old school thinking? Um, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think it is it might be generational but also women's business has been very strict in the same way men's business is and I think it will depend on on the group but you know birthing and fertility for the our mental health and so that we can support all of our community the best way forward is so that we know what resources um, we we know where to turn to for help so if that is culturally frowned upon, I think it needs to stop mm. because it's not doing us any any favours. Mm. Why do you think it is so important to change that narrative um, within the community? Um, and I think it expands to the wider mainstream community as well and talking about women's issues more openly. But I think that it, it, there's a lot of shame that's been attached to it and I know I found it very hard to to get information um, and and support to understand it and also work through my belief system about um, my expectations of what it is to be a mother, what it is to uh, be a woman and womanhood and sisterhood. Um, so unless... I've been sharing my experience. No one's openly come from my community to talk about it. Mm. So it's only been when I've said, oh, look, I'm having these sorts of troubles, have people opened up. And that's where mm. I've seen that there's a real benefit in that because we do have culturally specific stories and it's helped me. But I'd had, I had to be the brave one to sort of openly talk about it. Have you found that since you've been so open about it, other people have gone, okay, it's actually all right to maybe even launch into that process or speak about it? Yeah, I think there's, and, and it's with my wider 
friendship group as well as within Aboriginal community. But, you know, at least two women that I've been speaking to have then gone, well, I want to have a choice and I'm not ready to be a mum now. So maybe I should look into the process. And um, because I guess that's the main thing. I focused a lot of my career and now I'm, I'm going, oh, well, I want to have a choice mm. <laughs> um, and this is a way for me to have a choice, but it's also really costly. So um, that that's another thing, to be able to talk about it with, with um, friends and family and saying, look, this is what our reality looks like at the moment. Mm. So what do you think are the next steps forward here? I think even just sharing today is an important way for uh, other women to to know they're not alone. Um, I have gone on online forums as well to sort of seek that out. But I think open, being open with our our women and really calling on that sisterhood is is important. Everyone has bad days, and sometimes uh, a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, yeah. Now, what's next for you in the line of campaigning for Indigenous women in the workplace? Have you got plans for the future? I do. I I guess just continue to do the work that I do. Uh, I want to um, hopefully one day complete a uh, PhD in um, health law, which is one of the areas I'm passionate about or coronial um, area, which I'm also very passionate about. Um, hopefully... Um, IVF all goes well in the future and I <laughs> learn how to balance those competing uh, expectations but I know I'll have my hands full regardless. <laughs> I was about to say your life might be about to get a whole lot busier. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, thank you so much for chatting with us Evelyn. You're doing so much incredible work and um, I really do think that everything you've spoken about today really will touch a lot of people so thank you for being with us thank you for having me i do hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you avelina is an inspiration to women around the country and her triumphs and struggles alike are to be admired thank you again for your company on today's episode I'm Sammy O'Brien. Stay well and I'll be back again next week with another wonderful story from around our beautiful country.